As Democrats call for Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh to step down in the wake of unsubstantiated sexual charges, the time has come to ask the question, what are the rules of the Me Too movement? Is it an hysterical witch hunt being used by left-wing hypocrites to destroy the lives and careers of those with whom they disagree so they can protect their fanatical hold on power and prevent the nation from reestablishing constitutional governance after five decades of left-wing assaults on our liberty? Or is it, you know, something else? To answer these questions, mainstream media outlets have issued a new pamphlet entitled What Are the Rules of Me Too? written by ABC political analyst, sometimes known as Howdy Dowdy or Howdy Doody, or just Doody, especially after one of his TV appearances. The pamphlet begins with an introduction reading, quote, For too long, women's voices have gone unheard, although not necessarily in my house, where, believe me, if the voice of my ex-wife could go unheard for even half an hour, I'd give a tenth of my salary to charity. But in other, more peaceful places, women's voices have gone unheard, and it's time for this injustice to come to a shrill, screeching, and endlessly complaining halt, unquote. Dowdy Doody continues, writing, quote, Women must not only be heard, they must be believed, except my former mother-in-law, because the woman's a psycho. But the point is, if a conservative man is nominated to the Supreme Court and a woman who may or may not exist accuses him of something that may or may not have happened, these allegations must be taken seriously, lest we teach our daughters that they can't just randomly destroy people's lives at will, unquote. In conclusion, Dirty Dowdy writes, quote, for too long, we have lived by the rule that says a man is innocent until proven guilty. But I say, if we can't ruin our political opponents through unsubstantiated innuendo, then this is no longer the America I love, unquote. I guess they don't call him duty for nothing. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day, hooray, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray, hooray. All right, I didn't think I was going to get through that open without cracking up, but I get the prize. Uh, it is mailbag day, so pack up your troubles in your old mailbag, and we will get rid of them all, all my answers. Oh, my God, I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> It's like it's like some kind of mental torment. Uh, also, Yom Kippur. I, I guess you don't say Happy Yom Kippur. It's a very solemn holiday. Uh, ben was explaining it on the uh, on our backstage show uh, yesterday. It's when they take a day. Uh, Jews take a day to repent of their sins. Ben, it's probably going to take a couple days, I would think, uh, given his sins. But uh, he'll be back, and uh, and uh, I wish you all a, a good Yom Kippur. Uh, you know. You remember during the financial crisis, uh, Rahm Emanuel, who was going to become Obama's chief of staff and then go on to become the mayor of uh, Chicago and preside over the decline of Chicago into chaos and crime and murder. He said, you should never let a crisis go to waste. And of course, what he meant by that is when there's a crisis, people panic and you can stuff left wing laws and regulations and ideas down their throats, because normally people protect their freedoms. They want their freedoms, especially in America, where our freedoms are kind of in our blood. They're kind of, we've inherited, inherited this tradition of liberty. We know that we're supposed to be free. And so you need a crisis to make people panic and take their freedoms away. I'm watching this Brett Kavanaugh thing as this devolves into a, really a circus. It, at this point, is a circus in which the Democrats are really just using this woman's unsubstantiated charges to delay the process. Their hope is that they can delay the process until after the midterm elections so that 
uh, people up for election, Democrats up for election in red states won't have to cast a difficult vote against Kavanaugh and then get punished for it at the polls. That's one thing they want. And then in the uh, outside chance they take back the Senate, then they can just delay the Supreme Court pick forever. And that's the plan. That is the plan. It's not about sexual justice. It's not about this woman. It's not about her pain. But they're always, always, always using the same argument. And the argument is you should give up your liberty because feels, because feelings, you know, give up your liberty because it's a crisis, because my identity, because I'm a victim, because I look at my sad face, give up your look. Yes, yes. Okay. Okay. Humankind has crawled for thousands of years out of the muck of slavery, out of the muck of savagery. You know, it used to be that if you were a living a slave of the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh died, they buried you with the Pharaoh. You were dead. It took thousands and thousands of years for people to crawl up into the idea of individuality. People fought and fought and and died. Mothers lost their sons on battlefields. Yes, yes, yes. The Constitution, greatest piece of political writing ever done, ever. It's a completely unique document enclosing the wisdom of thousands of years. Yes, but I'm sad. I'm sad. Give, give it back. Give us, give us your freedom back, please. Because it's, oh, look, it's a woman. It's a woman. A woman. A woman. Are you going to hurt a woman by being free? Don't, oh, my goodness gracious. Do not do that. She's a victim. She has an identity. Her identity. She's gay. She's black. She's short. She's tall. Give up your freedom because this is a crisis. It is a crisis and we're sad. It's always the same argument. And the argument kind of got its strength, got its power from the restoration of rights to black people in this country, which was a true injustice, and it required federal action against states' rights. Remember during the time of segregation when the Democrats were fighting for some segregation down in the South, they called them Dixiecrats because they were the Democrats down in Dixie, when they were fighting to maintain the Jim Crow laws that they put in place after the Civil War that they lost, when they were fighting to keep uh, blacks from voting. The, the Supreme Court had to step in, the federal government had to step, step in with the civil rights law, and that is the template that they always want to use. But of course, that was an exception because a segment of American citizens were being kept by Democrats, were being kept out of the constitutional system. So it was an exception because they were being deprived of their constitutional rights. It doesn't make any sense to say because they were being deprived of their constitutional rights, we should get rid of the Constitution. No, it sh we should enforce the Constitution in everybody's lives. But in these cases, in all the other cases that come out of this, the gay rights and the women's rights and the Me Too movement, it's always, always the same argument. The argument is Give up your rights because a victim is being oppressed, because their identity is oppressed, because they have the sads. They feel, look how brave the accuser is. Give up your rights. So right now, we've got this guy, Brett Kavanaugh, by all accounts, a guy who's lived an unimpeachable life. Woman after woman has come forward saying what a great guy is. Women who have dated him have come forward. And now this, this one woman says that 35 years ago, in a drunken party, she can't remember exactly when, she can't remember exactly where. He climbed on top of her, pushed her into a room, locked the door, climbed on top of her, and felt her up, and she thought he was going to rape her. He says he wasn't even at the party. He says he may not even know the woman. He says, you know, uh, uh, that he, he certainly didn't do it. He's never done anything like this. And, they, and so the Republicans caught in the Me Too trap because the victims and all this say, okay, okay, due process, let's have a hearing, bring him in Monday. Christine Blasey Ford is now saying, nope, not coming in. This is the latest. Now, it all may change, but the latest is she said her lawyer sent a, a letter saying she wants an FBI investigation of her charges, which is absurd. 
because that's not the way the FBI works, right? The FBI investigates federal charges. If it, this would be a state crime, if it happened 35 years ago, if it's not a felony, it would be past the, uh, the statute of limitations. The FBI, when they do a background check, which they've done six times on Brett Kavanaugh, if there's a charge, they bring that charge to the Senate, which then investigates if it wants to, by having a hearing, which the Republicans are offering to do on Monday. But no, because that's not the point. It was never the point. So all, but all we want, all the, the left and its media, which is basically the mainstream media, want is the emotions to carry you away, to create a sense of crisis, to create a sense of victimhood, a sense of the preservation of these identities that they have invented and they've divided us all into, so that you give up those thousands of years of rights, those rights that were fashioned in blood and death and human thought and human enterprise and climbing. Give them up because it's a woman. It's a woman. She's always oh, a woman. So I, I have to start this by playing this cut of Anna Marie Cox. And I don't want to pick on Anna Marie Cox. She ran this uh, website, Wanquette, where she talked about all the sex people were having in Washington and all this. She became a Christian, I think, about three years ago, and she has a, I've heard her talk about her Christianity, and it's not my idea of Christianity. She says everybody was, nobody's born evil, where Christians really believe that not everybody's not born evil, they're just born broken, and they do bad things. They have a tendency to do, all of us have a tendency to do bad things. But now she, this is her standard that she puts forward on MSNBC for how Brett Kavanaugh should be judged if he, if he has to come forward and testify on Monday, which he has said he is more than willing to do. We need to judge Brett Kavanaugh not just on what he may or may not have done, but how he treats a woman's pain. And that is something I'm going to be paying attention to on Monday. How does he respond to what is happening, whether or not he, he agrees that this, this happened with her? Um, does he take her pain seriously? Do the, do the people interrogating her take her pain seriously? Now, I'll give you a spoiler alert. I don't think Brett Kavanaugh takes women's pain very seriously, and I know that because of the decisions he's made as a judge. Um, but I think that to have that unfold on you know, national television live uh, will be quite instruction, instructive. You, now, follow the logic of that. He's making decisions as a judge, as he has repeatedly said, on the basis of the law, but not on the basis of a woman's pain. You mean the Anglo-American system of law, which is one of the treasures of humanity. It is one of the tra it's, it's like a cathedral that humanity built. Again, sweat, blood, thousands of years, Anglo-American law, huzzah, but a woman's pain. A woman's, a woman's pain. And listen, none of us wants to see women in pain. We all have women in our lives. We love the women in our lives. You know, people keep saying to me, oh, if this happened to your daughter, you'd punch the guy out. And the answer to that is for, because they want to personalize it. They want to make it an emotional thing for me. But the thing is, if, it, if somebody did this to my daughter, I would punch him out. But if somebody did this to my daughter and I found out about it 35 years later and the guy had lived an unimpeachable life, I would not punch him out. That would be insane. That would be graceless. That would be unforgiving. It would be inhuman. Of course, if I found out about it 35 years later and the guy had lived a good life since then, you know, I just have to let it go. I'd have to deal with my pain. That's the way it would be. But now it's this, it's this kind of bullying idea that somehow the accuser's courage over and pain overrides the rights. Here is Brooke Baldwin on CNN. Just listen to the bullying tone here. Well, what? yeah, you want him to have due process. The, it's the accused who gets due process, right? The accused who gets due process. But what about the woman? Gotta, I got to push back a little bit. What... What process is there when you are a woman who suffered sexual and physical assault, allegedly, 
who is all of a sudden realizing this past summer that the person she says assaulted her is the guy who could be the next justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Absolutely. None so when I'm talking us, about process... Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. No, no, okay. Hang on, hang on. None of us can begin to understand what that process, her own process, looks like to then have the guts to come forward and write a letter at first anonymously because she feared the, the lashing which has begun. So I'm just well, saying, when you say right. the process... Well, it's emotional bullying. No one can understand what she's, oh my goodness, the pain, the suffering. And again, maybe so. I'm not, I'm not attacking uh, Christine Blasey Ford. I'm not attacking her. You know, I, I don't know what she remembers or what she misremembers, but due process is more important than her pain. The Constitution, more important than her pain. Our liberties, more important than her her pain. And I know it's sad. We feel for it. But that's not a reason to give up your rights or the rights of Brett Kavanaugh or his judgeship. Hey, I got to talk to you about Pair of Thieves. Over the weekend, I tried, I test drove some a pair of Pair of Thieves underwear. Now, we don't want to think too much about my underwear, right? We want to, you know, we've got enough and we don't want to think about like the mushrooms on the Mario Kart or anything like that. But I got to tell you, this stuff is so comfortable. It is, it's, it really is as close to going commando as you possibly can. It is, it's got designs on it and all that stuff, but that's not what got me. What got me is it's like wearing absolutely nothing, just incredibly comfortable. They, they want me to talk about, oh, you know, this proprietary moisture wicking fabric. What do you care? You don't have to make the underwear. You just have to wear the underwear. The guy, one of the guys who made this, he says his wife, all his wife wants is to see him in a pair of their super fit briefs. And his wife is Jessica Alba. So we're guaranteeing you that Jessica Alba will come to your house. No, we're not. But they are incredibly comfortable. And for a limited time this month only, our listeners get 20% off their first order at pairofthieves.com slash Clavin. Get 20% when you go to pairofthieves.com slash Clavin. This month only, pairofthieves.com slash Clavin. As you are wearing them, think of my underwear and you say to yourself, how do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. All right. So, of course, you know, Joe Biden also said this, by the way. Joe Biden said exactly the, you remember Joe Biden, the former vice president with the brains of an ashtray. He, he said, uh, for a woman to come forward in the glaring lights of focus nationally, you've got to start off with the presumption that at least the essence of what she's talking about is real. Whether or not she forgets facts, whether or not it's been made worse or better over time, Biden said. No, you don't. No, you don't. I mean, I I'm sorry. I I'm, if she's courageous, she's courageous. But if she doesn't show up on Monday, they should vote. And by the way, if you're a, a man, if you have an opinion about this, like me, and you're a man, the senator from Hawaii, Maisie Hirano, I guess her name is pronounced, she has something, a little message for you. Here it is. Of course it helps that there are women on that committee. But you know what? I expect the men in this country and the men in this committee, and many of them, believe me, because we all signed on to this letter to uh, demand an FBI investigation, but really, guess who's perpetuating all of these kinds of ac actions? It's the men in this country, and I just want to say to the men in this country, just shut up and step up. Do the right thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just shut up. Just shut up, men. Because it's all, you know, when you get to the point of, if you're not going to deal with rationality, if you're not going to deal with the law, if you're not going to follow process, and if it's all emotion, it's all bullying. You know, you know who gets this right again? Donald Trump is playing this really well. He's being much more restrained than he usually is. 
Just listen to what Trump had to say, because it's important. I feel so badly for him that he's going through this, to be honest with you. I feel so badly for him. This is not a man that deserves this. This should have been brought to the fore. It should have been brought up long ago. And that's what you have hearings for. You don't wait till the hearing is over and then all of a sudden bring it up. When Senator Feinstein sat with Judge Kavanaugh for a long period of time, a long, long meeting, she had this letter. Why didn't she bring it up? Why didn't she bring it up then? Why didn't the Democrats bring it up then? Because they obstruct and because they resist. That's the name of their campaign against me. They just resist and they just obstruct. And frankly, I think they're lousy on policy. And in many ways, they're lousy politicians. But they're very good on obstruction. And it's a shame because this is a great gentleman. With all of that, I feel that the Republicans, and I can speak for myself, we should go through a process because there shouldn't even be a little doubt. Because Brett Kavanaugh has feelings, too. That's why we don't give up our rights. We stick to the process. All right, let's let's move on here a little bit and talk about Trump declassifying these FISA warrants versus the deep state. Because I've always said, I've been very clear that I sometimes have trouble, trouble with Donald Trump. I've always been very honest about it. But the people who say he is fighting a swamp, a deep state, a government, unelected government that has gotten completely out of control, those people are absolutely right. And you've never seen it as clearly as this, because Donald Trump is talking about declassifying information in this Russia investigation. He wants to show that the FISA uh, court warrant that let them spy on his uh, campaign, that it was based on false, unsubstantiated charges from his opponent, from Hillary Clinton. So he says, yeah, I want to declassify this. Perfidious gas bag, John Brennan, right, who had a big hand in starting a lot of this, he goes on and says, oh, yeah, he can't, he's allowed to do that, but we shouldn't, allow, we shouldn't obey the, his power. I think it's highly inappropriate and unethical for Mr. Trump to take any action that pertains to the FBI criminal investigation of Russian collusion and Russian and cooperation with Russia during the election, of which Mr. Trump and close associates are subjects. So that should not happen, that he would able to be able to take such an action. He certainly has the authority to do it, but I do think it's highly inappropriate. Well, I think Christopher Wray, uh, director of FBI, and Dan Coase, director of national intelligence, as well as Rod Rosenstein, who is overseeing this investigation, should push back against any directive that is going to have negative impact on our capabilities, as well as the investigation. So I think they should continue to push, push, push. Uh, if Mr. Trump in the White House does not relent, well, then I think they have some decisions to make, whether or not they're going to just uh, not follow that direction and be fired or to resign. So they, he has the authority, but the deep st- the law enforcement should resist the law. Law enforcement should resist the law and resist and resist and obstruct and obstruct. Now, we saw, I'm not going to play this right now, but James O'Keefe uh, at Project Veritas has, has been doing his usual thing where he goes in with hidden cameras caught this guy in the State Department who is one of the Democrat Socialists of America who says, yeah, they can't fire me, so I'm writing Democrat Socialist letters. But earlier this week, Alexandria Gugulais Cortez, the Democrat Socialist candidate from Queens, was talking to Jake Tapper, and he asked her to explain how she was going to pay for all her projects. And everybody said, oh, she can't explain. So we'll play that because there's another kind of logic here that tells you why the deep state feels as empowered as it does. Your platform has called for various new programs, including 
Medicare for all, housing as a federal right, a federal jobs guarantee, tuition-free public college, canceling all student loan debt. Um, according to nonpartisan and left-leaning studies friendly to your cause, including the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities or the Tax Policy Center, the overall price tag is more than $40 trillion in the next decade. You recently said in an interview that increasing taxes on the very wealthy plus an increased corporate tax rate would make $2 trillion over the next 10 years. So where is the other $38 trillion going to come from? Well, one of the things that we need to realize when we look at something like Medicare for All, Medicare for All would save the American people a very large amount of money. And what we see as well is that these systems are not just uh, pie in the sky. They are, many of them are accomplished by every modern civilized democracy in the Western world. The United, uh, the United Kingdom has a form of single-payer health care, Canada, France, Germany. What we need to realize is that these investments are better and they are good for our future. These are generational investments so that not just, they're not short-term band-aids, but they are really profound decisions about who we want to be as a nation and, as, and how we want to act as the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. So everyone made fun of Google Eyes Cortez there. She really does have Google Eyes, I'm sorry, because she couldn't figure out how to pay for these $40 trillion of, of programs. But that's not what got me about that clip. What got me about that clip is the logic of it. She says, this is going to save the American people money and we're going to make an investment. But whose money? Whose money? What, that, what she means is that your money is, belongs to the American people, which means to the state. What she means when she says we're going to invest it is we're going to invest it. Sure, you earn it, you work for it, but we're going to invest it because we own your money. And if they own your money, they own your time. And if they own your time, they own your life. And it's because they think they own your time and because they think they own your life that they can do whatever they want, no matter who you elect. And that is why people voted for Donald Trump. All right, it is time for the mailbag. Woo! Yeah! <laughs> All right, we got a lot of good questions from Jacob. Uh, hello, Clavin. I, what happened to Lord Clavin? They used to call me the god of the multiverse. And I was Clavin. Hey, Clavin. I have a question on grief. All right, sad question here. I lost my mom to cancer last month right after my birthday, and I'm having a hard time grieving over it. Whenever I think about her, I switch to thinking about something else. I feel like I'm not grieving her properly, but I don't know what to do about it. I'm only 20, and I don't have anyone to talk to about this kind of thing, but I don't want to ignore my thoughts about my mom. This question is the first time I've really sat down and thought about my mom since she died. All right. I'm really sorry, pal. It's very tough to lose your parents and very tough to lose anybody you love. I've said this uh, many times, but it is worth saying again. Grief is a desert that has to be crossed on foot. And the reason I say that is because it is a space of time that you have to get through and there's no driving across it. There's no taking a camel or a bike. You got to walk it step by step. Don't feel guilty about where you are right now. You are in this place that you are supposed to be in, where your mind is saying, you know what, that's too much pain. I can't quite deal with it yet. I'm going to kind of put it aside. Just relax. Relax and be sad. Be sad. If you have someone to talk to, it's good to be able to talk to people. If you can't talk to people, sit down and write it down a little bit because that'll help you focus your thoughts or talk to God. Go in some place where you're alone and talk to God out loud. Uh, because that'll focus your thoughts. But don't blame yourself for where you are in the desert of grief. You know, a lot of times what happens is grief can go on for a long time. And a lot of times people around you get tired of hearing about it. And they're like, shouldn't you be over this by now? 
just take your time, walk across the desert. It is a, a we've all, you know, people who've, li- anyone who's lived for a long time, as I have, has been through the desert of grief. Just walk it, pal, step by step, put one foot in front of another, and you will get to the end of it. And if, and if you believe, pray, because God will let you get to the end of it in a place that is a good place. He'll let you come out of that desert in a good place. From uh, Matthew, I am a proud combat veteran. Well, thank you, Matthew. We appreciate that. Uh, And I listen to you daily. While I don't agree with you on some things, I love your viewpoint on freedom. I mean, that's what I fought for all these years. What is it that prevents everyone from reaching the seemingly unattainable goal of freedom in America? And will it ever be reached? Well, you know, uh, one of the things that George W. Bush used to say that I used to just tremendously disagree with, he would say, every human heart yearns for freedom. And I used to think, you know, George W. Bush is an evangelical Christian. He read the Bible. If you read the Bible, if you read the story of Exodus, the people are enslaved. They're being whipped. They're being forced to labor under hard, hard circumstances. And Moses comes and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And when Pharaoh says no, he brings in God, showers curses on the land, you know, breaks the heart of of, uh, Pharaoh so that finally Pharaoh relents. The people leave Egypt. They're free. They're finally free. And the waters part. And when the soldiers of Egypt come after them, God closes the waters over their head and they're drowned. And they get out into the desert and suddenly there's no food. And they say to Moses, hey, we were happier as slaves. We had food. We had water. Now we're out. What did you do? Were there no graves in Egypt that you took us out here into this desert? People don't want to be free. They want to be comfortable. They want to be safe. They want everything to go okay. And if that means they have to give up their freedom, they will. That's original sin. That is our brokenness, not yearning for the thing God made us for. God freed us for freedom. He made us for freedom, but we are broken. And so there's something in our heart that says, okay, enslave me, but feed me. Uh, Lord Acton, who was the great historian of freedom, wrote that those who support freedom are always in the minority and they always have to make common cause with someone else. And sometimes that someone else is not a very nice person. And so freedom gets tarred with the desires of bad people. So for instance, if a racist says, I should be free to not associate with black people. Well, yeah, he should be free to not associate with black people. He's a schmuck, but but he should be free to do it. So as you're defending freedom, you get caught uh, tangled up with this bad guy and it makes you and freedom look bad. And those are the kinds of things we face, the brokenness of the human heart and the fact that it's always a minority who are fighting for true freedom. Uh, from Christina, hello, Supreme Leader Clavin. I am a writer and a woman. I love your commentary on men and your discussions on Raymond Chandler and the mean streets. I appreciate that you highlight how we all need to fulfill the honorable requirements. Uh, I was wondering if you could expound on that idea for women. As a conservative and a writer, I like the structure of a hero's quest, but I still know from my own life experience that the hero's journey for women is different than that of men. It is. And she says, I'd like to know what you think from a cultural and biblical uh, perspective. You know, um, this is really true that uh, women's hero journey is different. I've said this before, that the essential story at the heart of every story is can the woman be loving enough to uh, find a man and create a new generation? And can the man be brave enough to protect her? Those are the things that, the kind of, that we're kind of dealing with. And can the man break away from his father? Can he become you know, the man that he wants to be? And can the woman become the woman that she wants to be? It's not, a, you know, they always, feminists impose all these ideas of strength and all this stuff. Yes, it does take strength to become a, a woman uh, and, and a full woman, but it also, it, it takes a certain kind of uh, tenderness and lovingness and vulnerability that men 
uh, don't always express. You know, the person who writes about this, I have to tell you, and I, I know is plugging my own family, but is my daughter, Faith Moore. She has a website, a blog about Disney princesses, and she talks about how the fairy tales show the women's journey, because fairy tales are one of the great cultural con contributions of women uh, to society, because they were all made up by moms telling their kids fairy tales. And so uh, Faith, anyway, if you go to Faith K. Moore on Twitter, uh, she will lead you to her, that will lead you to her blog site, and you can read about that as well. But the woman's journey is different. It is more tied up with love. The man's journey is also tied up with love, but it is also tied up with a kind of uh, physical warrior courage that is required to protect the people he's going to create. The woman's journey is much more invested in recreation and recreate, because men can't do that. That is, that is women's superpower, uh, is to recreate the generation. And all stories are kind of these stories that come out of the very deepest level of the human heart. How do we stay alive until the next generation, I think, is really what's underneath a lot of them. Um, from Isaac, Dear Clavin the Wise, about 90% of my family believe in a literalist interpretation of the Bible. However, I think more along the lines of Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson when it comes to God and the Bible. How do I convince my mom, for example, that I'm not going to hell? Well, you know what? You don't have to worry so much about convincing your mom. And, and you know, people, people have different levels of understanding of the Bible. But the important thing, really, is their faith and the fact that their faith connects them to God and that the God, God gives them meaning and fulfillment in their lives. You don't necessarily have to argue with your mom about faith. I mean, let her have her version of faith and you have it. You know, it's all, these are all metaphors that we use to get to the truth of God. I'm not saying the Bible isn't true. I believe a lot of the Bible is true, but I don't believe it literally in every single place. I believe it has a genres in it and different ways of talking about God. But, but you don't have to convince other people. Let, let people have their faith and you never want to undermine people's faith if you can help it, unless they're doing something bad in the name of their faith. Um, from Adam, hello, Andrew. I'm writing this because a recent life event has led me to reread re The Great Good Thing. The Great Good Thing is my memoir of my conversion from Judaism to Christianity. Uh, and he's particularly reading the sections where I, you discuss your relationship with your father. At one time in my life, my father was my closest friend. However, as years progressed, he struggled with alcohol abuse and there was tremendous strain in our relationship. Just as I thought I was on the road to mending the relationship, he died in a house fire this past April. He was only 55 years old and I'd like to believe that he might have turned a corner. Uh, now I'm left to remember the good about him, but I'm struggling to make sense of the combination of grief, anger, love, and the desire to forgive. Any thoughts? Yeah, again, you know, let yourself uh, struggle with these things. Think these things through. You want to be moving toward forgiveness. I did have a very difficult relationship with my father, uh, but I did uh, try to, you know, find forgiveness. And when I found forgiveness, I found it through will. I willed forgiveness. And then the forgiveness, the feeling of forgiveness followed my willing that forgiveness. But be honest with yourself. You know, go through the relationship sort it through. That's a very painful thing you've been through. Sort it through in your life. Hey, I got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube, but come on over to thedailywire.com and there you can subscribe for a lousy 10 bucks a month or 100 bucks for the year. If you subscribe for the year, you get the Leftist Tears Tumblr, but also more importantly, you get so much. You get Ben, you get Knowles, which, okay, you know, you, you get Knowles, whatever that's worth. But you also get to be in our mail, my mailbag, Knowles' mailbag, Ben's mailbag. You get to be part of the conversation when that comes along. When we do these backstages with our special guests, you get to ask questions there. Good reasons to subscribe. Also, you get to watch the whole thing streaming live right on the website, and we don't have to cut you off as we have to now. Come on over to thedailywire.com.
All right, from Kurt. Mr. Clavin, leftist culture and mainstream media always state that fascism and the Nazis are a product of the far right. After watching Dinesh D'Souza's movie, Death of a Nation, I'm now questioning this. Mr. D'Souza presented compelling information that these two were a product of the far left. He was basically saying it was the combination of progressive and nationalism with Nazis also adding racism. He was also stating that the alt-right has more in common with the left than the right. What is your opinion on this? Okay, well, an excellent book to read about this, by the way, is Jonah Goldberg's Liberal Fascism. He goes through the entire history of it. It's a little murky. I, I, I love Dinesh. He's a great guy, makes really fascinating movies and, and writes really fascinating books. But I, I sometimes think he pushes this argument a little bit too far. Hitler was a man of the left. I think that is fair to say. But Nazism, with its intense nationalism, which in Europe is usually associated with uh, being a conservative, with being right wing, Hitler with his nationalism was kind of a hodgepodge. He was also a psychopath. He was an evil psychopath. And so that doesn't really have a party. Believe me, believe me, nothing will protect you if you are an evil psychopath. You can be an evil psychopath on the left. You can be an evil psychopath on the right. But here is the thing. The categories in Europe are different from the categories here. And that's why when you read a newspaper and it says far-right party in Britain or far-right party in France, it's different. Why? Because they don't have a constitution that they are trying to conserve. When we say here that we are conservatives, we are trying to conserve the constitution. When we want a constitutional uh, literalist on the Supreme Court bench, it's because we're trying to conserve the rights of man. That has never been, that has never been a conservative point it, on, on the far right, certainly, in Europe, on the far right, nationalism, blood and soil. I get this all the time, by the way, from people on the right here, and I, would, I guess it's the alt-right, where I'll say America is an idea. America is a creed. That's what the founders believed. America is a creed. It is something you can ascribe to. You can subscribe to the idea that all men are created equal, that we have rights given to us from God, that the government is there to protect our rights. That is, as far as I'm concerned, what we are trying to conserve as American conservatives. Has nothing to do with blood, has nothing to do with soil. It happens to be here on America. What would you be if you didn't love your native land? You would be some kind of empty shell of a human being. What would you be if you didn't love your native land? But having said that, Yes, nationalism can go too far. So my, my point about Hitler is Hitler uh, grows out of several trends in European history. The anti-Semitism, which was a absolute uh, embedded idea in Europe. The uh, nationalism, again, not particularly a left-wing idea, but it, they were national socialists. They were fighting the communists, but they were national socialists. Hitler was a man of the left. All that means is, all that means is when the left immediately calls you Hitler, you can strike back by saying, hey, Hitler was a socialist, okay? If you want to get into that level of argument, that's what it is. But if you want to look at it a little bit more deeply, it's a little murkier than that. Um, all right. Hello, Supreme Leader Clavin. Now we're talking. Now we're getting back to what's on my business card. I'm a writer. Oh, I, I think I did that one already. Uh, and I'm actually running out of time, but I'll do one more from John. My college roommate was born and raised in China, but has become more libertarian as he's lived here. He wanted to ask if communism is a result of actual need or simply a result of want and greed. Has it ever worked? It never works. It never works because the logic of communism is the logic of slavery. We were talking about this with Alexandria Google Eyes Cortez. The logic of communism is that your work, what you own, uh, what you have created, is belongs to the state. And that's why it always devolves. It always devolves into slavery. It always devolves into cruelty. Plus, plus capitalism, <laughs> you know, this is so strange. Capitalism has lifted so many people. 
out of poverty around the world. And wherever, wherever you have rule of law, free trade, property rights, capitalism, you have these incredible glorious benefits. Why? Because it uses the human soul, human nature to create the economy. It uses freedom to create the economy. And that is, it's kind of a miracle. It's all cho choice. It's all, oh, look, I made an iPhone. Ooh, I want an iPhone. I'm willing to give you some of my money for that. I mean, that is a beautiful thing. Even greed, even your greed starts to serve my need under capitalism. But when you put it all on the state, it all devolves into power. It all becomes about I own what you made. I own your money. I own your time. I own your life. Even if it worked, it would be immoral. But it never works because it doesn't have the brilliant genius of capitalism and the brilliant genius of freedom. All right, time to move on to tickety-boo news. Well, I'm not so sure what's tickety-boo about this, except that it makes me laugh uproariously. And I think that that alone is something that is just incredibly worthwhile. Stormy Daniels has brought out her memoir. And as we might have imagined, it is, a, you know, a coarse, depressing, uh, you know, useless I, memoir. of The fact that Donald Trump did what we all could have guessed he did, which is slept with the porn star, right? But she goes on to these incredible... Uh, descriptions, these graphic descriptions, which I've now, to my great shame, uh, actually read, uh, in which she describes his junk. She describes, uh, you know, Trump's tower. And what she says is that, is that he, his junk looked like Toad from Mario Kart. And as a gamer, I have to tell you, this just broke my heart because I love all the Mario games. The Mario games were like some of the first really great games I played. I mean, I've played video games since they were invented, so I've played them all. But Super Mario was one of the greatest, and I cannot stand the fact that from now on, when I see Toad, smiling little Toad, in, um, in Mario Kart, I've got to think of Donald Trump's junk. But the thing that makes me laugh about this, okay, is how... The, the, the fact that the news is covering this, the news media is covering this as if this was important. Here's Jake Tapper. Like, what happened to you, Jake? I mean, Jake, you had a career. You had dignity. You were somebody. Now you're doing this. Listen to this. Lots of books claim to be tell-alls, but they don't follow through. Stormy Daniels' new book about her life? It's not that book. Wow. She tells all. From the details of her career in porn to, yes, being in bed with the future president of the United States and even being able to pick certain parts of him out of a lineup and then being threatened to shut up about it. All these accounts are in there. Jake, Jake, Jake. Here's the funny thing to me. I'm, I am old enough to remember when they didn't even report that the president was having an affair it, you know, in the Oval Office at the point, you know, J JFK was banging everybody who walked through there. I mean, like, he had, he had two... Uh, AIDS. They called them fiddle and faddle. That was their names for them. Uh, who They were skinny dipping in the White House pool together. And the press knew all this stuff and they just didn't report it. And when they first started to report on, back in the 80s, I would say it was, when they first started to report on the sexual shenanigans of powerful people, powerful men mostly, when they first started to report on that, there was this big debate about whether it was relevant, important news because it was the character issue. And I made fun of this. I wrote this novel, True Crime, which became the Clint Eastwood movie. And in that, he says, the character issue is just a way of reporting about sex. 
All we want to do is report about sex. Why? Because people want to read about sex, because people are salacious and they're judgmental and they're gossipy and they want to talk about sex so they will turn sex on. So while they were sitting there with their serious faces, just like today, they're sitting there with Brett Kavanaugh with their serious faces when it's all about politics. When they were talking about the, the character issue back in the 80s, they were really just talking about sex. That's all they wanted to do. So now we have moved on and now we have the horrible concept stuck in our head forever. Like, like I used to, you know, I, I, I've been walking around for days going like, beep, 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 because I'm singing the Mario theme song because this thing is stuck in my head. And now forever we have it stuck in our head that Donald Trump is walking around with toadstool from Mario Kart in his pants. And that's the character issue. That's the seriousness, the serious character issue. On top of this, on top of this, the guy, one of the people uh, who wrote for Sesame Street now says, yes, I'm a gay man and Bert and Ernie were gay. They're puppets. They're puppets. They haven't even got toadstool. They haven't even got to. They're just puppets. They don't have to be gay. They can just be pals. They can just be friends. And if you want to think of them as gay, go ahead. But leave us alone. Leave us alone. Your sex life doesn't matter to us. It doesn't matter to us. And by the way, Frank Oz said, you know, he's the guy who created Bert and Ernie. And he says they're not gay. They're friends. Of course, of course, they're just friends. We saw it on the air. They were pals. They were friends. These guys with their obsession about sex they will ruin everything. It really does. It really does. You have a right to be entertained. You have a right to watch Bert and Ernie. You have a right to play Mario Kart without these clowns getting in your head with their filthy ideas. All right. I got to say goodbye. It's been great. We will have uh, Glenn Beck here tomorrow. Will we not? I believe we will. The great, the great Glenn Beck. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. We'll see you then. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Technical producer, Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. And our animations are by Cynthia Angulo and Jacob Jackson. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire forward publishing production. Copyright forward publishing 2018.